0: Good morning. Good morning! Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your Spirit would be with us to enlighten our mind, that we can see you clearly today. In your holy name we pray, amen. And we are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly, Loved and Loving John's Epistles. And the title of the lesson this week is, Important Themes in First John. And if someone would read for us the memory text there in Sabbath lesson... Please, which is First John three two. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as
1: yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is.
0: When you when you hear this text, what what promise do you hear in this text?
2: We shall be like Him.
0: Okay, we shall be like Him. What else? How about that we shall see him? Is that a promise you're looking forward to, to see him? Yeah. And when I read this text, it's interesting, another text popped into my mind, maybe it, maybe it popped into your mind. But a text from the Old Testament, when, when God was talking to Moses, and Moses said, I just want to see you. And God sa- said to Moses, no one can see my face and live. And what's the deal with that? How come we've got this promise here, when, when he comes, we're going to see him. But God said to to, to Moses, No one can see my face and live. What's the difference? The change in us. The change in us, so that, as it's said in the text, we shall be like Him. So when we're changed to be like Him, does that then enable us to be able to see Him and not die? Well, well then what happens to those when He comes who haven't been changed to be like Him? Thoughts about that? What happens? Second Thessalonians two eight says And then shall the wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now those of us who are like him, what will happen when when we see the brightness of his coming? Will we be destroyed by it? No. Remember Moses coming down off the mountain, not having seen his face, but just been near his face, having been held in the cleft of the rock and seen the hindward parts, as it says in the King James. He comes down, what's his face doing? Yeah, did, did he have third-degree burns on his face? No, His whiskers didn't even get burned, but, but he's got this glow coming off him. The children of Israel, when they saw Moses' face now, this reflected glory on Moses, what did the children of Israel do? Did they rejoice in it? They said, let us get closer to you, Moses? Or they say, please veil it, we can't stand it, it's causing us pain? What's the deal on that? That's what we want to know. That's what we want to know, he says. They like him. Revelation six, fifteen and sixteen. Remember, we're talking about this idea. What happens to those who have not been changed to be like him when he comes? Revelation six, fifteen and sixteen. It says in the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountain. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Do you think when Jesus comes, that he'll have two faces, smiling at the righteous and frowning at the wicked? No. Or will the difference be in those who have been changed to be like him, they rejoice in his presence, but those who have not been changed, it scares them. And they run from him. Yes?
3: I was just thinking that the people who have rejected the truth about God have a very bad view of who God is. And that bad view will cause them to
0: be fearful of what they think He is, in way. Get this. This is from Desire of Ages, page 23. And remember, this is about Christ's first advent, and we know when He came through His first advent, His reason for coming was to save mankind, right? So this is the first advent. Notice what's said here. Had He appeared with the glory that was with the Father before the world was, we could not have endured the light of His presence. "...that we might behold it and not be destroyed, the manifestation of His glory was shrouded. His divinity was veiled with humanity, the invisible glory with the visible human form." What do you think that means? Is it talking about the same thing we're talking about here? Was there when, when Christ came, if He would have come in His unveiled glory the first time, would He have been coming in anger and wrath, or was He coming in no. love? But yet, what would have happened everyone would have been destroyed. Why? We're not, we had not, not yet been changed. We weren't like Him. Well, hopefully you're thinking about this because as you think this through then, when we think about Christ's coming and those who are like Him will be changed in the twinkling of an eye uh, and, the, and, and caught up together with Him in the air, but those who are unlike Him will be, as it said in Thessalonians, destroyed by the brightness of His coming. If that's really what happens, then does God have to sit in judgment and investigate records to determine beforehand who is like Him and who isn't like Him, and then use His power to inflict that particular penalty and suffering upon those who don't happen to be like Him when He comes? Or will it be self-evident by their own nature and character when He appears? As you judge, so are you
2: judged. If you think God as one way,
0: it's judgment against yourself. What do you all think? As you judge, it reveals the nature of your own heart? How about the angels in heaven? Do the angels in heaven need to sit in judgment and investigate who is like Christ and who is not like Christ? Or when he appears, will it be pretty obvious those who rejoice in his presence and are transformed and those who run away and are tormented when they see him? Will their own condition be self-determining? Those who've come to trust and love God, allowed the Holy Spirit to work in their mind, to regenerate and transform them? Haven't we been taught that somehow God needs to sit ahead of time and determine?
2: The
0: The investigative judgment, yeah. Like God doesn't actually already know. He's got to investigate. I mean, think that through for a minute.
2: Is it for God or is it for the
0: world? And that's the question I asked. If what we read here about the brightness of God's glory transforming the righteous and the wicked can't stand to be in his presence, um, is it which is more powerful evidence to you? To look in books or to actually see it happen in real time? Well, keep that in mind as we go through. Because what implication does this have on, on our current idea of, of what investigative judgment is all about? We're going to jump to Friday and work our way through in a kind of different order. But in Friday's lesson, somebody read for us the first paragraph, which begins, Today, First John.
3: Today, First John is very much needed because all sorts of false ideas are being promoted. John calls his audience and us not to believe everyone and not to accept uncritically new doctrines. But to put to test whether or not the teaching is truly biblical, discernment to distinguish truth from error is needed.
0: And I know some of you after heard what I just said, boy, I said that is right, right, right. <laughs> we needed to hear that, don't we? We don't want to take every newfangled doctrine that comes along. Let me ask you a question. What determines whether a doctrine is new or not? When Martin Luther nailed his thesis on the door at Worms, did some think that he was coming up with new theology? Was Martin Luther coming up with new theology? Or was his theology much older than what had been promulgated for the last thousand years? Hmm. When we challenge ideas in our church that have ideas or doctrines that our church has held for many years, does that necessarily mean that what we're coming up with are new? Let me read to you some things from one of the founders of our church. I'll give you the references. First one is Testimonies, Volume 5, page 706. It says, But as real spiritual life declines, it has ever been the tendency to cease to advance in the knowledge of truth. Men rest satisfied with the light already received from God's word and discourage any further investigation of the scripture. They become conservative and seek to avoid discussion. The fact that there is no controversy or agitation among God's people should not be regarded as conclusive evidence that they are holding fast to sound doctrine. But there is reason to fear that they may not be clearly discriminating between truth and error when no new questions are started by investigation of scripture when no difference of opinion arises which will set men to searching the Bible for themselves to make sure that they have the truth there will be many now as in ancient times who will hold to tradition and worship they know not what or here's another one this is out of Review and Herald December 2018 92. There is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all our expositions of scripture are without an error. Who do you think the hour is in this passage?
3: Church.
0: The Seventh-day Adventists, yeah. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. Uh, Or this one. Review and Herald, July 26, 1892. However long men have entertained certain views, if they are not clearly sustained by the written word, they should be discarded. Those who sincerely desire truth will not be reluctant to lay open their positions for investigation and criticism and will not be annoyed if their opinions and ideas are crossed. Wow, check that one out. When you uh, are discussing it with somebody and they get irritated and annoyed that your, your position differs from theirs, what is that telling you? They're not sure. They have insecurity. They don't know, and and they feel threatened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's another one. It says, "I have been shown that many who profess to have a knowledge of present truth know not what they believe. They do not understand the evidences of their faith. When the time of trials shall come, there are many now preaching to others who will find. Notice, many now preaching to others who will find upon examination the positions they hold." that there are many things which they can give no satisfactory reason. Until thus tested, they knew not their great ignorance. And there are many in the church who take it for granted that they understand what they believe, but until controversy arises, they do not know their own weakness. When separated from those of like faith and compelled to stand singly and alone to explain their belief, they will be surprised to see how confused are their ideas of what they have accepted as truth. I, I don't know where that one's from. I'm going to put that one in in the notes. So it'll be on the website. And then this one is selected messages, first selected messages, 411. This is the last one. Those who cannot impartially examine the evidences of a position that differs from their own are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. I like that one. I mean, did you notice the openness here? You see, the point she's making is truth doesn't lose anything by inquiry. If it's truth, it's truth. If your position isn't true, and, and you have to shut out investigation and shut down questioning to hold your position, that should be huge red flags for you. So, back to the question then. What decides whether something is new or not? I would say the new theology came with Satan's version of things. The old theology is what the Bible says in Revelation, is the eternal or everlasting gospel, the good news that has always been true about God and will always be true in the future. That is the old truth. The new truth is the things that make God look out to be something other than Jesus revealed him to be. And those aren't truths at all. Well, in Friday's lesson, get question number three. Fiorello LaGuardia was a judge during the hard years of the Depression in America one day a father was brought into his courtroom, having stolen bread. When asked by Judge LaGuardia why, did he, why he did it, the man, sobbing, said that it was to feed his hungry children. LaGuardia told the man, You have committed a crime, you know that. The man, penitent, barely raising his eyes, nodded and said, Yes, sir. LaGuardia then said sternly, That the law makes no exceptions. The man nodded. Judge LaGuardia then put his hand in his pocket, took out $10 and said, Here's the payment for your fine. I pay it myself. Though guilty, you will not face the penalty. How does this story help us understand not only the gospel, but also what it means to live like Jesus? It
1: doesn't help us understand the gospel in any way, shape or form.
0: What do you all think about Russell's conclusion, that this does not represent the gospel? And I would say then, I'm going to imply from your words, you're suggesting it misrepresents the gospel. What do you think about the idea this misrepresents the gospel?
2: It's based on a different kind of law.
0: So let's talk about, and I agree with Russell completely. I think this story and stories like this have been told for years, and it has twisted the minds of God's children. Let's talk about why this story is false and misrepresents the gospel. What are the various underpinnings it misrepresents? Number one, it misdiagnoses the problem of sin as a legal problem. Did this man have a legal problem? Yes. Our problem is not a legal problem. Our problem is a nature problem, a character problem, a heart motivation problem. We don't love like God loves. We live in fear and self-centeredness. Our hearts naturally seek to watch out for number one rather than naturally seeking to give ourselves in love for others. Our problem is not legal, it's nature. We misdiagnosed the problem. This story misdiagnoses the problem.
3: We could argue that the man did right.
0: Yes. Yeah, you could argue that he had a moral calling to to provide for his family. Yeah. Um, it also suggests that the man was at fault, i.e., that it's our fault that we are sinners. How many of you in this room chose to be born a sinner? See, there's only one human being, or two human beings, that have the responsibility for all of us being sinners. And that's Adam and Eve. They actually had a choice not to be sinners. But the Bible says in Psalms 51 that we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We did not have a choice whether we would be sinners or not. Now, the reality is we were born sinful. So, unaided, without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, which human beings, since Adam and Eve, had within themselves the ability not to sin? HIV-infected man gets together with an HIV-infected woman, and they have a child born HIV-infected. What did the child do wrong? So the child has no guilt. The child has no guilt. It did nothing wrong. But is the child still suffering from a condition which which unremedied will kill it? That's us. We didn't do anything wrong to be born in this condition. We don't have guilt. But we do have a condition which unremedied results in death. The wages of sin is death. That's the difference. Okay? So we didn't have a choice to which condition we were born in. This story kind of implies that it's our choice we have this problem. And not only that, an HIV-infected child, born HIV-infected at birth, will that child have any choice over whether it gets sick or not? No. Without remedy. When we're born into this world with real strong willpower, can we pre- prevent sinfulness in our life? No. We need an external remedy that we can't provide for ourselves. Jesus Christ is our remedy. He can transform our heart. He can renew us. He can recreate us in, in, in likeness of Him. But we can't regenerate ourselves. Yes? How is that um, the story?
1: Is are like a million talents or something? And then uh, he gave him on his debt. And then his fine fellow sort of go now. that. Like, how is that not compared with... That parable
0: that Jesus told. Yeah, the parable that Jesus told um, was about grace and about God's graciousness and demonstrating that God does not hold us responsible for this condition we find ourselves in. This condition is a court of law. And a penalty that the judge gets down and pays. Um, let's, let's go with some of the other misstatements mis- about it. It makes God's law analogous to a human law. And this is the if you want to get down to the real root in the great controversy where most of the theological divergences come from, it comes from misunderstanding God's law. The vast majority of people that I've talked to seem to believe God enacted a law. He created a law. He imposed a law. And as the great creator and imposer of law, he is now the one who enforces his law. And if you break his law as the enforcer of the law, he enforces penalties upon those who break the law. This is how most of it's seen. The, the truth of, of scripture is that God is love. That's his nature. And love is the law upon which all the universe is constructed. And so when God went out to design or create life, life's design template was the law of love. Analogous to the law of respiration, that's a law for life. If you want to live, you have to breathe. If you decide to tie a plastic bag over your head and break that law, you don't have to go to court to have a punishment meted out upon you for breaking that law. The laws of God are natural laws that emanate from His personhood. We see this all through Scripture, and this is what, what the Bible talks about in multiple places. Just let your, your, your computer go through all the, the Scripture lessons that talk about that all the laws hang on what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. All law hangs on this. Or Romans, where it says that love is the fulfillment of the law. Or those who keep the royal law of Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, do what is right. Um, you will find that it's the law of love, which is a design template for life. And when you breach that design template, what happens? What happens? Do I need to give some examples, as it says from nature, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says that God's divine nature and invisible qualities are seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. God, when he designed the law, when he designed the universe, it emanates from his nature. Love is not self-seeking, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is other-centered, outward-moving. And so you see this law in everything God creates. The oceans will give their waters to the clouds, which will... Rain over the lands, giving their waters to the, uh, to the lands, making rivers, lakes, and streams which flow back to the ocean, a never-ending circle of giving, the design for life, which brings life to everything. But if a water separates from the circle, a body of water separates, it stagnates, and everything and it dies. Only in the continual giving is their life. The example of breathing. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants freely. The plants give back oxygen to you freely. The circle of giving, which God designed life to operate upon. If you decide, look, I don't want any part of that thing. My body made carbon dioxide. It's mine. I have a right to it. I can keep it. You can't have it. The only way to do that is stop breathing into die. Every living system. This is the laws God designed it. The whole universe is designed this way. This is life. If you separate from that circle, the wages of separation, the wages of sin. The wages of lawlessness, as it says in First John, is death. And so that's what we're dealing with here. This makes it appear like God's law is arbitrary rather than natural. So the, the, the parable is messed up. Makes the penalty appear for breaking the law imposed rather than the reality is when you sin, it warps your conscience, sears your conscience, warps your reason, transforms your character, and moves you out of harmony with God. And if you look at this case of this particular guy who had the judge pay his penalty, his legal penalty is paid. But does that necessarily mean he walks out of there with a new heart and a right spirit? Or might he still be a thief at heart and he's going to go out and steal again? And the issue for Christ is not paying a legal penalty. What he's trying to do is change our hearts so that we are like him. And we walk out transformed and renewed. That's the gospel message changing us to be like Jesus. Wednesday's lesson. Somebody read the first paragraph. It starts out, Although John.
2: Although
3: John in his first letter deals with erroneous theologies, he again and again deals with ethics. John clearly sees that theology informs ethics and that a wrong theology can lead to wrong action. Hence, it's important to be as correct in our theology as possible. A wrong understanding, for instance, of the law and grace has caused untold millions to trample on God's Sabbath day. Thus, we must make sure that our theological understanding of God and the scripture is mature, growing, and correct.
0: The idea of religion or theological beliefs uh, informing ethics. You all agree, that's true. I think it's uh, something we should look at. So let me ask you this question. Question of the class. What wrong theology has led to Christians shooting abortion doctors? Or do you think that's right theology that led to that? I'm making an assumption it was wrong theology. Do you agree it was wrong theology? Yes. Okay, what wrong theology leads Christians to shoot abortion doctors?
2: The belief that unbaptized babies go to hell.
0: Okay, uh, she says the belief that unbaptized babies go to hell.
2: And they burn
0: eternally. And they burn eternally. It comes from Catholic theology of original guilt, and that uh, at conception a new immortal soul is created, and that soul is condemned to hell forever unless it gets baptized at birth by the priest or gets last rites at its death. That's one one bad theology. That's exactly right. Other bad theologies that might contribute.
1: That God has to punish the wicked.
0: Ah, that God has to inflict a punishment upon the wicked they would not would not otherwise reap which would be Satan saying something like this look guys I never said God wasn't powerful of course he's powerful he's just not very good if he could get a few anger management classes and get his wrath and anger under control well we could live forever in our sin because there's nothing wrong with sin there's something wrong with God who gets angry over sin you see the problem? if you have a God who must inflict it who gets angry and wrathful and and then tortures his children in the end well there's the problem it's God, it's not sin but that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. Or in 1 James, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Or Galatians, which says the man who sows to the carnal nature, from that nature reaps dis- destruction. We've got some, some, some ideas. How about this one? What bad theology... Yes? It's
1: the same picture of God that makes men fly airplanes into buildings.
0: Well, that was the next one. What, what kind of picture of God causes people to fly planes into buildings? Or what kind of bad theology... Or how about, what kind of theology leads Christians to stand outside abortion clinics and scream at 16-year-old rape victims calling them murderers? You don't think this happens? Oh, what happens. Yeah.
3: Um, There's also the thought that there's something called justice that makes it okay to do hurtful things because it's justice and it causes a better thing in the end.
0: Yeah, and justice because because we believe that the law is imposed, then we believe justice must be imposed. I read this week in Christian uh, the magazine called Christian Doctor, written by the president of the Christian Medical Dental Association, an editorial about the call for justice in the healthcare reform, and he says, do we really want justice in the healthcare reform? What would justice look like in healthcare reform? Well, how about people who abuse themselves of cigarettes, alcohol, tobacco, drugs, uh, get very sexual transmitted diseases because of wayward living? This is self-imposed damage to self. What would justice say they deserve? Well, this is what, this is what we're talking about. From the world standard, what's the justice say they deserve? They reap what they sow, right? So in his article, he says, "We don't call for justice, we call for mercy. Healthcare mercy, not health justice. So this idea of justice, theological justice, can be messed up, can't it? It says in the, in the lesson, What about wrong understandings of law and grace, which has caused untold millions to trample on God's Sabbath? What wrong theology led to the following? The Jews who put Christ on the cross and wanted him down before sunset so they could keep the Sabbath. She says the wrong idea of what the Sabbath was about. Any other wrong theology? It's better
2: than when they
0: the Do you think they had the wrong idea of what God was like? Yeah. I mean, when he's standing there in front of them, did they like him? No. Did they want a God that would use power to coerce and, and, and use force to throw the Romans off of them? Is that what they wanted? Did they want a God who would love others more than himself and give himself and sacrifice? Did they want a God that would call them to start ministering and washing the feet of the Roman soldiers? Did they want a God like that? No. No. So, are we talking that they had the wrong day of the week? No. No. They had the wrong God of the day of the week. What about the wrong theology that has led to the following? Adventists who made the Sabbath the most restrictive day of individual enslavement of the week, driving their children from the church. Never happens? Oh, I heard some mumblings that happens all the time. What wrong theology leads to that?
2: Keeping the
0: Sabbath, you don't get them to heaven. Ah, if you keep the Sabbath, you automatically get the seal of God, and if you do any other day, you're going to get the mark of the beast. Right? It's all about the day you go to church on. Is it really true it's all about the day you go to church on? No. What's it all about? To our God. It's all about the God you worship. Who is God? That's the question. What's Michael mean? Who is like God? What was the war in heaven started over? Lucifer said God is not good. Michael says, hey, God is just like me. What did Jesus say? I've come to finish the work you've given me to do. I have made you known unto men. John chapter 17. What about... What wrong theology has led to the following? Presentations from pulpits of the Sabbath as an arbitrary test of obedience. Have anybody heard that the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience? If it's true, it's in writing, he says. It's in writing in many of our literatures. Yes, it's true. If it's true that the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience, then what does that say about the person who imp- implemented that test?
1: I'm that is arbitrary.
0: That is arbitrary. And if you you read in in Ellen White's writing, she says explicitly that one of the allegations of Satan is that God is severe, unforgiving, and arbitrary. That's one of the direct allegations of Satan against God. And if we come along and say, well, the Sabbath is an arbitrary test, we are actually voicing one of Satan's allegations against God. The Sabbath is not an arbitrary test. Understand what arbitrary means. Arbitrary means there is absolutely no underlying reason other than the person in power whimsically decides to do it, and that's the reason. We should think through. There are underlying reasons for the Sabbath. There's reasons, and they're all motivated on love. They're all motivated on God's character of love. All motivated on truth, because God is truth. And this is what underpins the the Sabbath. What about this one? What wrong theology has led to the following? The substitution of Sunday for Sabbath. Might makes right. Might makes right. Church tradition supersedes Scripture. That's that's the big argument. The church tradition supersedes scrip- Scripture. That's the big argument. And that the resurrection of Christ made Sunday a holy day. That's part of the theology as well. We
3: should cross customs, long-standing customs.
0: Then hmm. we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't uh, cross long-standing traditions or customs that people have. It can
1: also still go back to a misunderstanding about the character of God. Sunday was a holy day in pagan sun worship. A pagan god must
0: be appeased. He must have worship. He demands more worship from his creatures. If you look at the historical roots to the transition, it was tied to the Sunday worship of pagan gods. There's no question. When Constantine converted. No question about it. Um... That's good. Somebody read the second paragraph. Begins: We also.
1: We also must make sure that our theology correctly translates into practice. It is sad to see someone, a great defender of orthodox theology, run away with his neighbor's spouse. It is tragic for theology majors and seminarians to cheat on their exams. It is lamentable that Sabbath keepers who know the truth about salvation, the heavenly sanctuary, and the state of the dead, and nevertheless lie to each other.
0: Thoughts about that paragraph?
1: kind of leaves you with another well feeling.
0: What do you hear when you hear the paragraph?
1: You should know better.
0: <laughs> you should know better. Bad boy. Go to the corner. Time out.
3: It's also a concentration on, on more of like legal kind of things rather than a look at God and, and what God's like that would actually cause us to not want to do those kind of unloving things
1: is focused on behaviors.
0: If somebody has fever cough and chills, what's the problem? What's 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 the underlying root problem for this person? You see somebody with fever cough and chills, do you go, "Man, that guy has got a serious problem of fever cough and chills." We need to give him Tylenol for fever and cough suppressant for cough and blankets for the chills and I'm sure he'll get well. Those are actually the problem. Well, Which is the problem that we primarily suffer with? Acts of sin? Or a heart condition that leads to acts of sin?
2: Heart condition.
0: Jesus said in Matthew 5, You say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. Bad act. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You say if you commit murder, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart... You've already committed murder, or you're in the face of the judgment. Um, where's Christ making the focus? The behavior or the heart that leads to the behavior? Yeah. Do you notice that these legal models always focus on behavior? They always focus on the symptoms. Think of how, how symptom-focused we are in our theology. What do we need? Well, we need to get our legal debt pardoned. We need to get our sins paid for. We need to get the record book erased from the record of sins. I mean, you, you think it's all about somehow modulating the symptoms rather than treating the heart. But what does the new, what does the whole Bible teach? Um, create me a clean heart, O God. Renew your right spirit within me. Circumcise the heart with the circumcision of the Holy Spirit. Let's have the mind of Christ. Let's take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. Let's be renewed in the inner man. Let's be reborn. Let's be recreated or regenerated. I mean, the Bible is teaching that God wants to do something much, much more than treat symptoms of a disease. He wants to treat the root to the disease itself. He wants to give you the mind of Christ, the character of Christ, the heart of Christ, so you can live a life free of fear, a life of love for other people. That's what He wants to do, yes.
2: This is that what Jesus had that helped him to get through life. He had the heart of God in him. He was one with God. And unless we become one with God in our lives,
0: we can't get rid of sin. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. That's exactly right. Those who seek to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will. This is a heart change issue. What motivates us to action? is not primarily behavior. And we have got so behavior focused that we've lost sight of the true remedy. And this is one of Satan's tricks. It would be no different than if you had pneumonia and you went to a doctor who was giving you Tylenol and cough suppressant but never treated your pneumonia. We get sicker and sicker and sicker and the symptoms get worse and worse and worse. And this is why we haven't been ready to meet Christ and see him face to face because we're not ready to stand in that light. This is what God is preparing a people for. Yes? Well, then we
2: need to study how to abide in Jesus. How does he affect us every moment, every day? How do we do
0: that? Thoughts about that. This is a great question. How do we abide in Christ? How do we... Jesus said, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, John chapter 6, you have no part with me. What is he talking about? Spending time with
3: me in the Bible
0: and getting to know Him. Spending time in the Bible and getting to know Him. A huge piece of it, no question about it.
1: Becoming like Him.
0: Becoming like Him, partaking of Him in heart, yes? Opening the heart and let Him in. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone open, I will come in and sup with him, he with me. It's the door to the heart. And this is part of it is, as our class name says, come and reason. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet, they little be white like snow, though they're red like crimson, they made like wool. God has said, when you reason with me, it's connected directly with cleansing. Why? What is it that defiles? What is it that caused the breakdown in Adam and Eve's relationship with God in the first place? Living lies. Distrust. Distrust based on lies. Why? Sage is the father of husbands and wives in the room. Um, you're in a loving, trusting marriage. The spouse who you know, loves you and you love them. And if somebody close to you comes to you—your own adult child, your own brother, your own sister, your own mother, somebody else you love and trust—comes to you and tells you that you're, uh, tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair, and they tell it to you with tears in their eyes, as if they're heartbreaking over it, and they actually bring digitally enhanced photos they've made on their computer showing your spouse in the arms of another. Now, even though there's no truth in it, your spouse is loyal, faithful, true. If you believe the lie, there's something inside of you change. Notice the power of lies. The circle of love and trust gets broken when we believe lies. This is the root problem. This is why Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the truth is about what? It's about God. Because we've been lied to about God. It's always centered on this issue. Can we trust God? And we have these things that have crept into our thinking and teaching in the church about how we see God that, that causes fear of Him rather than trust of Him. Yeah, Tina. Well,
3: see that when I studied lessons this week and looked at all the legalistic things that we've been talking about, that's what it is. All on actions, what we do. How can how can we as a church stop this? We send our children to church, to church school, Sabbath school. They're all teaching that. They learn it from the very. I told you about the Sabbath school lesson we read, the little kindergarten thing where the God was unhappy with the world because she wanted more shoes. She wanted another pair of shoes. Would God be happy with that if you got another pair of shoes? So we start our kids teaching in kindergarten, incredible, all through school, college. So it's a vicious circle with our church. We keep teaching the same thing over We haven't changed. Where does it start? How can we stop it? it?
0: starts with every one of us in our circle of influence. Yeah. It
3: starts in the home.
0: It starts in the home.
3: The home
2: should be more what? that's persuasive and
3: outside influences. That's true, but then in the home, the people go to church just on Sabbath, and they preach, and they don't study every day. I mean, how many to study every day like we should? So they hear it on Sabbath, and they hear the same, same thing over and over and over.
0: Anybody remember Eric B. Hare? Oh, yes. Okay, you're all as old as me then. Oh, maybe not all of you. Okay. Um but uh I got a book and I, I read this maybe a year or two ago in the class, a little short story. I'll just recite it to you now, not read it to you. But a book of Eric Beher, where he was uh, you know, in, in the in Asia and uh and he was giving a lesson to the people about what God is like who didn't know anything about Christianity. And he gave the story. He says, When I was a child, I uh I found a stray dog, a little black dog that I loved. Uh and I brought that dog home. But my father hated that dog. He didn't want to have that dog in the house because that dog would bring mud in and trap. Mud in and would chew things up and make problems. But I pleaded for that dog, and because my father loved me, my father let the dog stay. That's how it is with God and us. Jesus pleads with us to the Father, so the Father will let us in his home. Eric Behare. How do you like that story? How do you like that picture of God? God doesn't want us there. He can't stand us because we're dirty and we're nasty. But Jesus pleads to Him, and for His love for His Son, He lets us in. Do you like that picture? It's just so opposite of what Jesus said. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, Jesus said. The Father and I are one. Hebrews 1 says that Christ is his exact representation of the Father. Ellen White says that Christ was God's thoughts made audible and visible to man. Uh, Corinthians says that God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ bodily. In other words, everything that is true about the Father is seen in the life of Christ. And when we get our mind around that and start running all of our ideas about the Father through the lens of Jesus Christ, it really brings clarity to a lot of things. Tim? Yes?
2: I think what really turned my thinking around was when you brought up the point that it depends on what way you see Jesus standing when He's pleading with the Father. If you see Him pleading with the Father, towards the Father, like, you know, spare them, take me. Or if you see Him next to the Father at His right hand saying... With the
0: Father pleading for You mean along with the Father. Okay, let's give some Bible references for that because I like it. I think she's exactly right. We've had, we've had a lot of these things turned 180 degrees backwards. We've had Jesus in heaven pleading to the Father to be merciful rather than Jesus as the Father's envoy and ambassador representing the Father pleading to mankind to be repentant. But let's give some Bible text for that. Uh, Romans chapter 8 starting verse 31. If God is for us, who could be against us? Now who's for us? Uh-huh. Now notice we're talking about the Father here because the very next phrase is he who did not spare his son but gave him up how will he not also with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? He is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In addition to, in other words, along with the Father interceding for us. That's, that's a great one. No question. Yes? No
2: question. In and, and what Tina just said, we need to then be writing some new children's books, be teaching Sabbath school, some of this group, and getting a better message across to the children. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that may be a way of beginning because, as you know, I taught Sabbath school for years and some of these
3: stories that you've told came from me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and that's my mother, folks. I, I heard those stories. <laughs> yes. I think a lot about what we
1: do every morning, you know, spending that time with God, coming coming before the throne of God and uh, asking for opportunities and stuff like that where we can present it. Because I mean like the uh, the, the performers like uh, Martin Luther and all that, like, you know, they were they God presented them truth and then he presented <coughs> opportunities for them to share it and they just take when with those opportunities they didn't say no or I'm afraid or I want to get up front they went forward and you know they presented what God had shown them to be truth and they let God take care of it and we need to uh, be willing vessels to share it with people, <coughs> and pray every morning that you know the light will shine through the darkness
0: well said well said one more text about the, the turning which way Christ is facing when he's in heaven pleading Jesus said to his disciples it's expedient for you that I go if I don't go the comforter won't come but When I go, I will send the comforter. Now, he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. Now, who do you think the comforter is listening to to speak? Well, if you're wondering, he says, He will take what is mine and make it known to you. Jesus goes on to clarify. What I see happening is that Jesus is in heaven, carrying out the Father's will of pleading with you and me, my blood, my blood... In other words, metaphorically, hey, look what I have done for you. I love you. I've died for you. Won't you let me heal you? Won't you let me save you? And the Holy Spirit takes the pleadings of Christ and communicates them to your heart and mind. That's the way the pleadings are happening. Not this other thing with one member of the Godhead pleading to another member of the Godhead to be kind and gracious. That's paganism. Yes?
2: I agree with the idea of starting your day with prayer, uh, but you have to be aware of that voice all day long. You can't just... Have your prayer, and they will about your business without thinking about what your conscience what conscience is telling you in every instant, and in everything that you're doing all day long. It helps you to make the choices that you need to make and act like you should. Uh, but it, it's almost like you have a earpiece in your ear, and you're listening for that voice of God directing you through your day. Amen. You have to be conscious of that voice in you.
0: And, and, and I, I love that. And one of the things that helps me is when I think about God's law of love, that other-centeredness, that principle, the design template of life, as I'm driving in my car, I'm looking for where I see that in action, and where I see Satan's law of survival of the fittest, which is the law that's warring against what Paul might call the law of sin and death, the law that wars against God's law of other-centered giving. I see that in action, and I, and I look, and I contemplate those two, and I think, how am I involved in that? How can I move forward the law of love in my sphere of influence? And you can think this all day long, because you see it every day. You see, if you get your mind around it, you see it everywhere, because this is the constant battle raging all around us. Yeah, it's a a great way. Mm -hmm. So back to that question, what does it mean if someone defends orthodox theology and runs away with his neighbor's spouse? Well, my question is, is it possible the problem is in his orthodox theology? That's where the problem is. He has orthodox theology. What's orthodox theology? It's about behavior, It's about you've done bad deeds, but don't worry, because all the bad deeds you've ever done were laid on to Christ, past, present, and future, were laid on to Christ and paid fully on him and the cross. And if you ask forgiveness for your bad deeds, well then stamp, boom, forgiveness next to your record book in heaven. And it doesn't really matter now, because all the things, once you've been saved, you've always been saved, and all those different types of things of orthodox theology. Is it a problem that theology is teaching him an idea that opens the way to, oh, I don't, I, and what about the idea and you can't have victorious living now, you're going to keep sinning up until the day Christ comes. There's no victory over sin. Is that orthodox theology? It's pretty orthodox. No victory, guys. Don't expect it. It won't happen. You're going to continue to live in sin. Well then, heck! No hope, right? I'm suggesting the problem is, and what, what the Bible seems to be teaching is that God is trying to prepare people. As it said in our memory text for today, that when He comes, we shall see Him because... We shall be like him. Like him. He's wanting a people that he can make like him. Now, if we're like Jesus, is there ever a problem with one of us needing to worry about another one running away with our spouse, if we're like Jesus in heart? No. No. And that's what the universe is going to be populated with. Everybody in the universe is going to be like Jesus, meaning that everyone will love you so much that everyone in the universe would give their life for you. And you love everyone in the universe so much you'd give your life for them. That's where God is trying to change us. That is much more than a transaction happening on record books in heaven. Questions, thoughts about any of that? When you talk
1: about giving your life, is that a
2: literal, like, I'll die? Or is that more of a, I don't want to cut you off your traffic?
0: I I think it's both, actually, depending on the circumstance. Parents in the room parents in the room. If you see your child toddling out in the street and the car is bearing down on them and you have the time to run out and shove them out of the way but it's very likely you'll get hit what do you do? You do it. it. Why do you do it? Love compels us to give of ourselves to help other people when we genuinely love. The problem is we are so infected with our need to protect ourselves so infected with our fear that if we give of ourselves we won't have any left for us. This is what we're so, so infected with, that survival of the fittest, that need to watch our back, because no one else is watching, because of the lie believed in the garden. We can't trust God. He's not watching out for us. He'll let us go. He'll abandon us. He, well, in fact, if Jesus wasn't there to plead to him, well, he'd be zapping me right now. This is why we live in fear, yes.
2: Sometimes it's easier to die than to keep living.
0: And that's true, too. Sometimes we can find ourselves in circumstances where to continue on living takes more courage than to to die. And I have patients that that find themselves in those circumstances, and they will often turn towards a suicidal path rather than a path of, of overcoming difficulties in their life. You're right. That's a great insight. Last paragraph, Wednesday's Lesson says, John makes it clear that to be born of God, to know God, to love God, is something that will change our lives. For John, truth isn't just something believed, it's something lived out. Perhaps no verse says it clearer than 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteous, righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. The, and it's the, exactly right. The point is a transformation, regenerating process that actually causes us in heart to live different lives from a motive of love and truth. Not from a motive of fear. There are many people who go to church for fear of getting the mark of the beast. Go to church on Sabbath for fear of getting the mark of the beast. There are many people who give their tithe for fear that God won't give them their next month's rent if they don't pay their tithe. There's many people who, who eat the right foods for fear that if they don't eat the right foods that they won't be ready for the translation. You understand what I'm saying? That is not Christian living. Perfect love casts out all fear. That's what the scripture says. And the battle between Christ and Satan in our hearts wars between love and fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were... Afraid. afraid. Fear is part of the infection of sin. And it is so deeply rooted into us. We, we live, we, we are driven most of our lives by fear. Fear of what others think of us. Fear of failure. Fear of not getting our, 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 the grade. Fear of not getting the girl or the guy. Fear of, fear of not having this month's rent. Fear, fear, fear drives us. God wants to free us from that fear. He wants to fill us with a unified connectedness with Him, the Sovereign of the universe, knowing Him so well, this is life eternal, they might know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ and now sent, that we can live lives free from fear. And maybe somebody heard the first church service this morning. Anybody go to first church this morning? Yes, and you heard about a couple of little girls who lived that life. Marion and Barbie Fisher. Who went to a school in an Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania a few years back when a gunman broke in and sent out the adults and then locked himself in there with ten little girls and as the police arrived and it became um, evident that he was going to stand up and he was going to kill these little girls thirteen-year-old Marion Fisher stood up and said shoot me first and let the other ones go and he shot and killed her and no sooner had her body hit the ground than her eleven-year-old sister Barbie stood up and said shoot me next and let the other ones go. And she was shot five times, but survived. You see, these little girls were not afraid. They loved those other girls so much, they were willing to give themselves. That kind of love, you can't create in your own heart. That kind of love, it says in Romans 5.5, that when we come to trust Him, He pours His love into our hearts. It is a gift from God. It is a transforming process, a supernatural process. Our choice is, do we trust Him and let Him in, or do we keep the door to the heart closed? And when we trust Him and let Him in, then we experience that love, and we want to spend time with Him, we want to get to know Him more, we want to share this incredible God with other people, so that their hearts and minds can be set free from the fear that drags and drives them. Yes? I'd
3: like to go back to where you were talking about the parent running into the street, and I thought, you know what? That is not a decision. That is automatic for a parent. And you don't even have to think, am I going to do that? And I think that's an incredible freedom that God is wanting us to obtain, is to not even have to think, not have to work, to feel that, to feel that kind of love automatically.
0: Beautifully said. Just to take that analogy back and back it up just a hair. You're walking down the street by yourself and you go to cross the street and you step out in the street and you see an 18-wheeler bearing down on you all alone. What do you experience? Fear. Fear. But now you see your toddler toddle out in the street, and you have the opportunity to run and shove them out of the way, and you do, and you You see them rolling to safety in the grass. What do you experience now? Joy. Joy. Your child is safe. In both circumstances, you're getting hit by a truck. But in one, there's joy because the love, and this is the only power in the universe, guys. Get your mind around this. The only power in the universe that can free our hearts from fear and heal us is the power of love. It is not the power of coercive force or the powers that make stars. That power can free us. The only, In fact, that power scares us. It's the power of love that frees us from fear. And this power comes only in knowing God. As revealed in Jesus Christ. And Satan knows that when we get to know Him that well, it will be just like you said. Imagine you, you had that close a connection with the Father as you have with your child, so it's automatic. Do you see how Satan's power over you is, is, is completely limited? He doesn't want us to know God that well because when we know Him that well, we will experience that love for Him that will imbue us and overflow, as He said to the woman at Well, if you partake of the water I have, it will well up inside of you and overflow to many. This is what God wants to do in our lives. Um, And last question in the back. Someone had a hand. Yes.
2: I think about um, the nature that we have. We have to be willing to let that selfish nature die. And that's so hard because we're so afraid of of protecting who we are and our pride. And we have to let the nature of love live. It's almost like that's the part that has to die in order for God to live
0: in us. And the only way we're willing to do that is if we've come to know God so well that we can really trust Him with our lives. We can't do it on theory. We have to do it with a personal experience with Him that we know Him and then therefore we can turn our life over to Him. This is why life eternal is knowing God our gracious heavenly father we thank you so much that you have gone to such incredible lengths to bring us the truth about who you are to set us free from the distortions that have held us, held us captive Lord we want to be filled with your presence your spirit we want the Holy Spirit to take all that Christ has done reproduce it in our hearts let us see you for who you are as revealed in Jesus and let our hearts be filled with your love for others that we can live free from fear giving of ourselves to be shining lights in this world so that we can be ready to meet you face to face so that we, as we will be like you, we pray in your holy name. Amen.